welcome to the Messianic Jewish Life Podcast. Hi, this is Daniel Nessim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic movement by exploring what people imagined about the Messiah in the year he was born. In the year he was born, what were people saying about the Messiah? What were they learning about him? What were they reading? And what were their hopes and what were their stories? What kind of Messiah were they expecting? Amidst all the complexity of Jewish life in Israel, religious and political ferment combined to produce a messianic hope. Thus, this first century BCE witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism that was the expectation of an Messiah, an anointed one, who would fulfill many expectations and hopes raised by the predictions of the prophets, and Israel's desire for freedom from foreign oppression. Today, Jewish and Christian scholars disagree about the kind of Messiah that Yeshua declared himself to be, or even that he declared himself to be the Messiah or a Messiah. The question that begs to be asked, however, is whether Yeshua was the kind of Messiah that the people of his day were hoping for. What did their reading of the scriptures and their tradition lead them to believe about the Messiah? What effect did the domination of foreign powers in the nation's life have on their ideas about his role as a deliverer? The answers to questions like this are far from simple, and as one might expect, they varied from segment to segment of Jewish society. So it's self-evident to most scholars that Jews of the first century who were looking for the Messiah were looking for a deliverer from the oppression of the Roman administration in oppression that was aggravated by the horrible Herod that they had as their king. So this is actually a given, and it's not this point that I'm going to try to prove here. What can and should be shown is that other streams of messianic expectation did exist. And these streams of messianic expectation even maybe flourished in certain segments of Jewish society. So to be sure, we are going to briefly look at the expectations for a ruling Messiah, but we also have to look at the possibility that there were also different ideas floating around in the the ether about the role of the coming Messiah in Jewish society in the year that Yeshua was born. While, of course, the idea of King Messiah conquering Israel's oppressors was in the forefront, What we then want to look at are the nuances, the other viewpoints and expectations that were being expressed in his day. So to go one step further, when in future podcast episodes we get to his years of teaching in the Galil and in Judea and Samaria, we will see that it was not such a leap as many people suppose for Yeshua's followers to acknowledge him as the Son of God or even going just one step beyond commonly accepted thought to patently attribute some sort of divinity to him. Yeshua made his appearance in the Galil early in the second quarter of the first century CE. 
in his time, he was far from being the only one people thought might be the Messiah. Claimants to the title abounded. Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, in his book that lists over 70 messianic would-be messiahs, that is 70 people in Jewish history who would have been the messiah, writes that popularly the messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century CE because the millennium was at hand. Prior to that time, he was not expected because according to the chronology of the day, the millennium was still considerably removed. Various writings then, such as the Sibylline Oracles or the Book of Enoch, circulated and raised hopes of the people. Josephus attests to this. He attests that this expectation contributed to the Jews taking up a war against Rome based on what he calls an ambiguous oracle that was found in their sacred writings. How about that time one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth? So let's look at thoughts about Messiah the king. The most evident of all assertions about the first century expectations of the Messiah is that he was expected to come as a king and deliverer of the Jewish people from their ruthless, foreign, illegitimate oppressors. So the Sibylline Oracles that we mentioned, a collection of Jewish writings written both before and after his life, speaks of Messiah in glowing terms as a coming king. In the third book in particular, one of the more ancient parts of the collection is of great interest. And Oxford scholar Alfred Edersheim wrote over a hundred years ago that in these oracles, 170 years before Messiah, the Messiah is the king sent from heaven who would judge every man in blood and splendor of fire. Similarly, the vision of Messianic times opens with a reference to the king whom God will send from the sun. Later, another passage in the Sibylline Oracles declares, For a blessed man came from the expanses of heaven with a scepter in his hands, which God gave him, and he gained sway over all things well. This picture of a messianic ruler who acts as a judge over all men and things is not confined to the oracle alone. It was a common expectation that the Messiah's kingdom would have a universal and spiritual aspect to it. It would not be a kingdom just over the people of Israel. Thus, philosopher Philo, Philo lived in Alexandria, and he wrote a book called The Life of Moses, wrote that a man shall hereafter come forth out of thee who shall rule over many nations, and his kingdom shall increase every day and be raised up to heaven. Now, Messiah the king had to be, as shown by the dialogue in Matthew twenty-two forty-two. He had to be the descendant of King David the archetypal Jewish king. Yeshua asked the Pharisees, What do you think of Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied, The son of David. 
Other New Testament passages also demonstrate again and again that the Messiah was expected to be a descendant of David, and yet outside the New Testament as well. The 17th Psalm of Solomon, written about 50 years BCE, draws a detailed picture of the coming Davidic Messiah. Here, he's portrayed not only as a mighty deliverer, but also as one pure of sin, announcing, and he will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. The writer of the psalm went even further and got even more theological and said he will be pure of sin to rule over countless nations, to recover the nations and destroy the sinners by the might of the word. That this man should be of Davidic descent is again seen in Second Ezra 12.32, which says that the Messiah will arise from the posterity of David. So, there's almost no one who would dispute that, just like today, those Jews who believe in a personal human Messiah were looking for one who would fulfill certain predictions of the Hebrew Bible, especially those that would bring Israel deliverance from its enemies. The question, of course, is often, which one? Who is it? Other thoughts in Yeshua's day and before where that somehow the Messiah would have this sonship relationship with God, with Hashem. Amazing writings anticipated that the Messiah would be more than a mere man. Even if deity were not ascribed to him, certainly some of these writings expected that he would be superhuman or a superhuman with extraordinary authority and abilities. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, we love those. Um, a fragment is found among the Dead Sea Scrolls that asserts over the poor his spirit will hover and will renew the faithful with his power and he will glorify the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom. He who liberates the captives, restores sight to the blind, straightens the bent for he will heal the wounded and revive the dead, and bring good news to the poor. This fragment echoes the same interpretation of Scripture made by Yeshua when he read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, implying that he himself was the one who had come in fulfillment of that Scripture. Another Dead Sea Scroll fragment suggests, in terms strikingly familiar to those who have read New the New Testament account of Yeshua's conception and birth, that Messiah is somehow physically descended from God. It says, when God engenders the priest Messiah, he shall come with them at the head of the whole congregation of Israel, with all his brethren, the sons of Aaron, the priests, those called to the assembly, the men of renown, and they shall sit before him, each man in the order of his dignity. And then the Messiah of Israel shall come. The chiefs of the clans of Israel shall sit before him. So here's another fragment that indicates that the Messiah is going to be a great ruler. And it also states that Messiah was expected to be fathered, yolid is the Hebrew word, by God. It's a word that Oxford scholar Geza Vermesh 
um, a Jewish scholar who had at one point converted to Christianity, somehow made it through the Shoah, and yet uh, recanted his Christianity later in life, um, translated as Yeled or child from the Hebrew. Perhaps one might speculate it's the word that Yeshua used when he spoke about the only begotten in, in the Greek of the Gospel of John, monogene, the only begotten Son. Translations that express this word, monogene, as one and only miss this sense and misportray what the original writer of John was saying. He wasn't just saying one and only. He was actually saying the only begotten, the only generated, gene generated son of God. He was saying what the Dead Sea Scroll fragment was saying. And Vermesh himself confirmed that a computer enhancement of the manuscript verifies the accuracy of this reading. So bolstering this connection between the Father and Messiah as his son were numerous terms, including the idea of sonship, which were current in pre-Christian Judaism. The phrases son of God and son of man were not unknown in the first century BCE. The Psalms of Solomon 17.23, for example, refers to the son of David, emphasizing Messiah's kingly ancestry. A second Dead Sea Scrolls fragment for Q246 refers to one who is the expected son of God. The son of God, it says, will be proclaimed the son of the Most High, they will call him. And if this second source was the only text we had, it might be dismissed as an anachronism because it makes the strongest links between him and the Most High, even if it is not expressly asserting deity as an attribute of the Son. There are many sources, though, such as the well-known book of Enoch, or Hanach, which repeatedly emphasizes the same theme. The book of Enoch, clearly written sometime before the first century CE, has been found complete in the Ethiopic language. Its early dating has been shown by the fact that fragments of it were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there a number of chapters foretell and anticipate one who is to come who is called the Son of Man, a term that's frequently used in the New Testament. There we read, for example, that at that hour the Son of Man was named in the presence of the Lord of Spirits and his name before the head of days, and he shall be the light of the Gentiles. A later chapter states that from the beginning the Son of Man was hidden, and that all the kings shall worship and set their hope upon the Son of Man. So similar is this language to that of the New Testament, it becomes more than a stretch that the writers of the New Testament and the participants in the gospel accounts were not familiar with it. Of course, they were. Further, it is likely that not only were they familiar with these terms, but so were their audiences, the people who were reading these gospel texts that were written in the Brit Hadashah. So was it so far-fetched for Simon Peter to declare, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God? From the perspective of the New Testament, which presents Yeshua as divine, as both God and man, a further question has to be asked. 
Did Israel expect a Messiah who was himself a possessor of the attributes of deity? A superhuman with ties to the Most High was expected by some, even many, as the documents show. But was God himself in some way expected to be the Messiah? New Testament texts indicate that Yeshua's general audience at this time did not. Nevertheless, we can see that the Jewish monotheism of the first century was not so absolute as that of today. And these hints are provided by the first century Alexandrian Jewish philosopher Philo. In writing about Genesis 9 and 6, for example, he asks, Why is it that God says he made man after the image of God and not that he made him after his own image? No mortal thing could have been formed on the similitude of the supreme father of the universe, but only after the pattern of the second deity, the second deity, who is the word, the word of the supreme being. We could theologize further. We could find more examples. But I want to talk a little bit now about Messiah as the servant and the priest. It's an expectation that some people had. Maybe they wondered how it would be incorporated into Messiah the Deliverer, Messiah the Redeemer, Messiah the Ruling King and Teacher of Righteousness. But here the view was that Messiah would be a servant or even a priestly figure. There's one test, one, one text that's quoted quite often, and it's possibly a bit over the top. It's from the Testament of Judah. And there the reader is told that after this there shall arise for you a star from Jacob and priests, and a man shall arise from my posterity like the son of righteousness, walking with the sons of men in gentleness and righteousness, and in him will be found no sin, and the heavens will be opened upon him to pour out the Spirit as a blessing of the Holy Father, and he will pour the Spirit of grace on you. And you shall be sons in truth, and you will walk in his first and final decrees. This is the shoot of God Most High. This is a fountain for the life of all humanity. Then he will illumine the scepter of my kingdom, and from your root shall arise the shoot, and through it shall arise the rod of righteousness for the nations to judge and save all that call on the Lord. That text is so explicit and so in line with what Yeshua's disciples came to believe about him that more than a few scholars have assumed and believed that this was added or construed and changed somehow by Christians who transmitted the Testament of Judah at a later date. So there's quite a possibility that this is true. On the other hand, this is not so far beyond what is possible. We can't hang our hats on this peg, okay? But we can look at it as a possible indication. Here's some other indications, though, that that we may want to look at and that we can give some serious thought to. For example, 4Q285. That's a scroll from the fourth excavated uh, cave of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's the 285th one that they cataloged. And it reads, A staff shall rise from the root of Jesse, and they will put to death the leader of the community, the branch of David. 
If this is the correct reading of the ancient scroll fragment, it becomes even clearer that some Jews were open to the possibility that this root of Jesse would be one who would suffer before he would rule. For the writer of this fragment, the leader, leader of the community may have been the leader of the Essene community or their teacher of righteousness. We see that the root of Jesse is connected to the branch of David. Both are connected to the leader of the community. David, of course, is a messianic figure. And so when the leader of the community is prophesied as being killed at some point, this is a messianic prediction of sorts, maybe more than of sorts, because the Essenes viewed themselves as having an important, maybe pivotal role in the messianic kingdom when Messiah came. Of course, this view was in notable contrast in some ways to the image of Messiah as a coming king. Nevertheless, from the viewpoint of Messianic Judaism, it's in harmony with the servant spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. From our perspective, the tension that these different views of the Messiah created in people's minds eventually gave rise to the tradition seen in later texts that there would be two messiahs. One would be a victorious ruler and one would be a righteous tzaddik who in many of those accounts would suffer injustice. The Israel of Yeshua's day, in which Messianic Judaism had its genesis, was ripe for Messiah's coming. And as has been seen, what I would call nascent Messianic Judaism was birthed not only in the person of Yeshua, but also in the midst of a nation rife with nationalism, religious speculation, and expectation regarding him. And as we recount the history of Messianic Judaism, it is important like this to see its origins in the Second Temple period and its thought. Now, as we come to the end of this podcast, let me list just a few of the important writings of that that time that I haven't mentioned, and hints that they include about their messianic expectations. One is the temple scroll, which describes the future temple, its priesthood, its festivals, its sacrifices, hints as to its calendar, and the messianic kingdom. It is in this temple that God would dwell with Israel for all eternity. The people would cleave to God, and God would call them his people. That's a theme also found in Jubilee, chapter 1. First Enoch speaks and in a beautiful passage says, I saw one who had a head of days, and his head was white like wool, and with him was another being whose countenance had the appearance of a man, and his face was full of graciousness like one of the holy angels. And I asked the angel who went with me and showed me all the hidden things concerning that son of man, who he was, and whence he was, and why he went with the head of days. And he answered and said unto me, This is the son of man who has righteousness, with whom dwells righteousness, and who reveals all the treasures of that which is hidden, because the Lord of spirits has chosen him, and whose lot has the preeminence before the Lord of spirits in uprightness forever. That's First Enoch 46. It echoes Daniel 7, which speaks of the Son of Man, who is given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And there's the Sarek. This is the community rule of the Essene 
community, sometimes called the Manual of Discipline. They saw themselves as a holy society and an eternal fellowship. They had their secret teachings that were revealed to them by their interpreter. And there too, in the second column of one fragment of this manual, first Q, 1QSA 2 verses 11 to 21, there's the prospect of a banquet with the Messiah, and it's discussed at length. And here it seems that Messiah is expected to be one of their community, one who would live among them. Another writing of interest to give an idea about messianic expectations of this day is the Damascus document, in which there's a curious reference to the men who entered the new covenant in the land of Damascus. This covenant is seen as the fountain of living water. In this book, as in other writings in Qumran, there's often mention of the teacher of righteousness, a role which Yeshua doubtless fulfilled in his own way. A new covenant, fountains of living water, themes that echo in the early Messianic Jewish community. So as we can see, there are many texts and stories that were written and told about our Messiah. They tell a lot about the thought and the range of ideas about who he would be in his day. This is the end of the time that we would call the cradle of Messianic Judaism. We have seen the religious map of his day, and in this episode we've seen the writings that express the aspirations and hopes of the Jewish people for the Messiah who would come. This is the stuff from which Messianic Judaism would be born upon the recognition of many Jews of Yeshua as the Messiah. We are at an exciting point in our journey throughout the history of Messianic Judaism, as now we are ready to discuss Messiah Yeshua in his day and in his Jewish context. Join us next week as we begin to explore the events surrounding his birth in this next phase in Messianic Jewish history. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Do me a favor. Take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. My email address is daniel at nesim.org, and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nesim, and this is On Messianic Judaism. Music